Welcome back to the On the Brain podcast, where we showcase exciting research here at the University of Calgary. We already learned about stroke in adults, but did you know it can also happen in babies? Today, we talk about stroke in early life and vision, and how you can use eye tracking, MRI, and other methods to study the interactions of stroke and vision in early childhood. Tune in to find out more. Hi everyone, my name is Claire. I'm a second year master's student in the neuroscience program, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to this episode of On the Brain podcast, where we're so fortunate to be joined by Megan to talk to us about all things stroke, kids, brains, and vision. So Megan, tell us a little bit about yourself and your project. Yeah, that's great. I'd love to. I'm a first year master's student in the um, Curtin lab, so that's under Dr. Adam Curtin. And my background is in occupational therapy. So I was working as an occupational therapist. And for anyone who doesn't know, it's a rehab profession. Uh, We're kind of like physio, except that we focus more on thinking skills, vision, social interaction, as well as some physical abilities. Um, And my work was a lot with people who had had strokes and brain injuries. And specifically, I did a lot of work around assessing vision and retraining some visual abilities. So when I found out about Dr. Adam Curtin wanting to do this project with vision and stroke, it just seemed like a really perfect opportunity to um, help you know, grow my own knowledge and then also contribute to what we do know about kids who've had strokes in their visual systems. So Megan, I wanted to ask, what is sort of for our audience perinatal stroke or stroke around the time of birth? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. So a perinatal stroke is basically a stroke, either it's a bleed in the brain or the brain is starved of oxygen. And perinatal means that it basically is about a week before birth to 28 days after birth, kind of in that time frame. And so with these kids, sometimes you might notice right away when they're a baby because they might have a seizure and then the baby will go in an MRI scanner and they'll be able to see it. But sometimes you won't know that a kid has had a perinatal stroke until they're two, three, four, and they start, you know, using their arms more and they don't have the dexterity that their friends have. And, and so then the parents will bring them in and say, I think something's wrong. So it's it's interesting because it, it happens at birth, but that's not necessarily when we find out about it. So I think from hearing about this project, even just as briefly as you were explaining it before, we'd love to hear a little bit more about the importance of this work, the importance of this work in in kids, especially who've experienced stroke. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, there are, I think, a number of ways in which this is important. I think Uh, One of the ways is that we just don't know a lot about how the visual system develops in children um, and, and even in healthy children who haven't had strokes. And so because the kids that I'm working with had a stroke right around birth, Mm -hmm. then we can really see how that is different from kids who haven't had strokes because their visual system will have adapted And so we'll be able to look at all the different parts of the visual system and figure out, like, how did the brain um, rewire or wire itself so that it can still do the things it needs to do in terms of the visual system. But 
um, without having all the same parts. Because sometimes with our kids, you'll, you know, if you look at their scan, you'll see a big black hole from their stroke and then just no brain developed there. But they still have a visual pathway. And so it just had to go around or go up or go down. And so we're still just learning about that. Um, And the other way in which I think that this work is really important is that we don't really know right now um, the kids who have strokes, how many of them have problems with their vision. You know, sometimes in the in the research I've read, sometimes it's 80 percent have a small visual problem or a big visual problem. And sometimes it's 30 percent. And that's a really big range. And so I think we'd like to narrow that down. Um, And in my own work clinically, um, I was doing assessments for driving. And so sometimes I would see these kids who had had these strokes at birth and they want to get their license. And so they, you know, they'd come to the clinic and I'd look at all their visual um, and physical and cognitive skills and their thinking skills. And sometimes I would you know, potentially be the first person to tell them that they're missing a a part of their vision because they'd never been tested before and they had just adapted so well that they had no idea that, you know, maybe they were missing the right half of their visual field and then that's not really safe for driving. So do we need a better clinical pathway that says that, you know, when, when a child has this type of stroke, we should look at all of them in terms of vision at this age just to figure out um, what what their visual system looks like and if they're going to have any problems. And then if we can figure out some markers that show that, okay, if this part of the brain looks like this, then they're probably going to have this type of impairment. Right. Then we can start to develop treatments and hopefully reteach those kids so that they aren't... Um, so that they aren't really missing out and kind of participating in all of these life things, you know. Amazing, yeah. Right now, we don't know if it impacts play, if it impacts how they read, how they see the board, how they, you know, participate in school. Right. You know, there's a lot of cues that come from our eyes when we're interacting socially with other people. So do they have all of those cues? There's just so much that we don't know. So we're really trying to take it back to the structure of the brain and how it's different and and go from there and see what we find. So Megan, in talking to you sort of behind the scenes of this podcast a little bit, we've discussed how you're using many different tools to study your research question and that you're really approaching this research with a comprehensive, yeah, a comprehensive approach. So can you tell us a little bit about how you're studying this question and also why this sort of comprehensive approach is yeah, absolutely. So the methods are kind of divided up into three different categories. Right. So I'm uh, fortunate to have a wonderful neuro-ophthalmologist, Dr. Dodd, and she's going to be assessing all the kids in terms of things like eye health. Right. Um, and so um, measuring different parts of structures of the eye to make sure that those are all intact. She's going to be looking at Uh, what we call visual field testing. So if there are any blind spots anywhere in the visual field. Um, So that's kind of that section that an ophthalmologist would be really familiar with. Uh, And then we're doing a section that's all perceptual testing. So we're looking for um, 
a, so, and perception is basically just like, when I look at you, how do I interpret that? So right. it has nothing to do with me having 20-20 vision. It's, can I tell dark from light? Can I pick something out in a busy environment? Can I recognize shapes and do they make sense to my brain? So we'll have a section where we do that, as well as we're looking briefly at reading. And then um, the last section is all about imaging. So the kids are going into an MRI scanner and we'll be taking out different bits of data from that right. and looking at how the visual structures in the brain are working together under different conditions. Yeah. So. And I'm interested to know, and maybe the audience would be as well, what areas of the brain are we thinking about when we're, when we're talking about studying vision? Yeah, so we need to look at the retina. So that's okay. kind of start of our visual system from a, a brain perspective. And so that's just at the back of the eye. And then there are pathways that go from the eyes and they cross and then they go back towards the back of the brain. Right. So just that bony bit is where your visual cortex is. And that's where we um, take in a lot of the information. Yeah. And then vision, we don't use it in isolation. So because it needs to interact with our language centers when we're reading and it needs to interact with our frontal cortex when we're looking at something and trying to judge and figure out what it is. So then you have all these other tracks that are coming back towards to different parts of the brain. So it's a really complex system and we're not really sure yet how much of it we're going to be able to analyze, but we're going for gold. So Megan, this is excellent, right? Like you've talked about these comprehensive methods and what you're studying. Now, how do you think like this will impact everything going on in the clinic or in the setting when patients are being treated or just in general? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think, you know, the reason that our methods are so comprehensive is because the hope would be that uh, we can share this information with different types of clinicians and different types of healthcare providers. And so all of those measures that the ophthalmologist is doing is going to be understood by other ophthalmologists. All of the perceptual measures that I'm doing are going to be understood by other occupational therapists, physios, speech pathologists, and the structural data is all going to be understood by pediatric neurologists. Right. And so depending on what we end up finding, we're going to have three members of the healthcare team or three different divisions of the healthcare team that could potentially notice that something is wrong and that might warrant further assessment, again, just to help us find these impairments in younger and younger kids with a better chance we might be able to fix them. Right. That's, that's incredible. And how has it been working with an interdisciplinary team of health professionals? Um, I love it, actually. I feel, I feel so lucky to be getting all of these different perspectives. And coming from the rehab world, you see things a certain way, and you're always looking at things through your own lens, pun intended. <laughs> and then um, now I'm getting to hear what's important to an ophthalmologist and what's important to a neurologist. So I really like that I'm able to kind of combine all of these three worlds and then um, and then hopefully be able to share that information back to all of these people. So when we talk about these clinical implications, another thing that we're really interested in is knowledge translation. 
So can you tell us a little bit about what what knowledge translation even is? And yeah, I'll just I'll, I think that's my first question. Um, most people would re- refer to it. You might have heard kind of the phrase from bench to bedside, right? And so bench being the research world, and then bedside being the healthcare setting or or whatever setting that you want that to be. And so I think the first part is how do we know that we're asking questions that are important to the people who are seeing the patients? And then if we're asking the right questions and then we get some good answers, how do we share that information to these people in a way that they start to take it on and use it as part of their practice? Um, and historically, it's it's been a pretty slow process, right? Mm-hmm. You learn something and then it can take sometimes 5, 10, 15 years for people on the front lines to start using it every day, all the time. So it's it's really one of the biggest challenges of research. So we're so lucky to have someone with your expertise and beautiful personality doing this work. And I want you to talk a little bit about, if you can, Megan, you know, your background as an occupational therapist and how that puts you in this incredible position to be someone that's doing lots of knowledge translation, knowledge mobilization, and sort of what motivated you to come back from the occupational therapy world to research? Yeah, that's um, that's a question with a few different parts. And so I'm, I'm just going to answer the second part first, uh, which is really when I was when I was working as a clinician, I found that there was so much information that we just didn't know, particularly about the visual system. And so sometimes that's hard for you to feel like you're doing your best job as a therapist because you're like, maybe this will work, maybe this won't, maybe I'm using a good tool to assess this, maybe I'm not. Um, so, so really, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to go back to school was to be able to ask some of those questions and then get some of those answers. And then the next part, like you mentioned, is the knowledge translation. And so we have these, we call ourselves allied health. You know, when when we lump together physios and OTs and speech pathologists and social workers, and, yeah. um, and we're all kind of working from a quality of life perspective right. with our patients. And so we speak a very different language than other medical professionals because our focus is on all of the things that people do that give their lives meaning and um, importance and, and fun and enjoyment. And so I hope that the, the findings of our study will be important in changing the way that we practice so that maybe an occupational therapist or a physio might be able to find some of these impairments sooner and then think, um, okay, I'm going to tell the neurologist and see what the neurologist thinks, or I'm going to let the ophthalmologist know, and maybe we, you know, did we do this enough assessment? Do they know everything they need to know about this kid's vision? And so that kind of goes back to having the three different branches of our methods is that we want this study to be able to... um, to be able to translate that information to pediatric neurologists, neuro-ophthalmologists, and allied health professionals so that everybody is thinking the same things when they're looking at the visual health of a child. Right. And, of course, those partnerships with other allied health professionals, physicians versus everybody, 
you know, when you have that relationship, it seems too like they can really help you develop research questions and understand areas of need as you're going through research too. So that's, mm-hmm. that's excellent to hear. Yeah, the partnerships have been amazing. And I've learned stuff that I never thought I would learn in an, you know, as an occupational therapist, I can run an MRI machine. I was like, what other OT can do that? (laughs) (laughs) It's so incredible. And thank you so much for everything you've done for the research community in such a short amount of time here. We're so lucky to have you at the University of Calgary. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast and sharing your knowledge with the audience and for your friendship and your mentorship and and everything. Thank you. This has been a really fun experience and I hope that the listeners find it valuable. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode. And we will see you next time on On the Brain. Bye.